welcome. I'm James St. James. This is Night Fever, New York nightlife legends of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, the co-founders of World of Wonder, Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado. It's good to see you both. Hi. Hi, hi. Now, today we have with us a nightlife legend. She has been around since the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and she's still with us today. And we're still going Still strong. going strong. She is a Studio 54 superstar. She is a cable TV pioneer. She was one of the first women uh, to trade on the New York Stock Exchange. She is an entrepreneur. Welcome to the show, the one and only, the legendary, the glamorous, Nikki Haskell. How are you? Hi, guys. Hi, Nikki. Well, we made it. Yay. Never give in, never give up, and never take no for an answer. There's so much to talk about with you. There's there's so much ground to cover. We were talking a couple of weeks ago. You said, you know, you grew up in Beverly Hills, right? No, I grew up in Chicago. I was born in Chicago and I lived in Chicago till I was 13. And then I moved to Beverly Hills and I went to grammar school and high school here. I went to Beverly Hills High School. When you were in high school, you were in a uh, a, a competition that was judged by Bob Hope and Joan Collins and that you won. What was that? I went to Beverly Hills High School. Okay. When, that's when the twist first came in. In the early, in the right? 60s. So, right. So this is, this is like, you know, chubby checkers, do the twist, the whole thing. I was like right into it. I was like the queen, right? I was, I started very young. So they had a place in Hollywood called Marouches and they, they had a twist contest. And Bob Hope and Joan Collins and several other people judged the twist contest and I won. And that's how I became friendly with Joan Collins. Who to this day, who is one of your best friends in the world. Right. One of my best friends. She's in San Tropez, having a wonderful time, which I wish I were there. <laughs> but I'm not. I'm here. But you're not. You're here. You told me about a club called the Daisy that I had never heard of. And this is the early 60s. So the Daisy was on Rodeo Drive in the in the second block of Rodeo Drive. And it was owned by a man by the name of Jack Hansen. Jack and Sally Hansen, they own this very famous store in Beverly Hills called Jack's, J-A-X. And it was on the corner of Bedford and Wilshire. And everybody shopped there from Audrey Hepburn, everyone. It was the chicest mix and match, fabulous. Then he opened this club uh, on Rodeo. And it was in a brick building. And you had a knock on the door. It was private. If you, didn't, if you weren't a member, you couldn't get in. And it was very dark. It had a long entranceway with a smoky mirror on the side with all sorts of a bar, you know, with bar stools on it. Then on the left, it had a raised area that was all tables and chairs. It was all black. And then it had a dance floor. And and Warren Beatty would be there and Sinatra would be there. I mean, it was the greatest. They had a room. We played pool. And it was the best. My ex-husband used to say to me, the only reason that you remarried me is because I joined the Daisy. And that was true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to call the way you see it. <laughs> I imagine in the early 60s, the people who were at this club must have been a who's who. Uh, I mean, you, you mentioned Sinatra totally. and everybody, but it, just, totally. it must have been like young. Like, was it Jack Nicholson? Was it all Hollywood, all superstars? All, everybody who was anybody was there. And then they opened up the street. They opened another club called the Candy Store. And so there were like, there were like three, there were like three discotheques within a block and a half of each other. Okay. At this time, Sunset Strip had like, Sunset Strip was the greatest. It had coffee shops. That's when coffee shops first came in. You know, you used to go to these little coffee shops on Sunset. But it had nightclubs. And it had the Crescendo, the Cloister, and the Interlude. The Cloister was my favorite. When the Cloister, the opening night was Bobby Darren. You know, wow. you sat there in the in the dark room and they flashed the knife. 
and he saved back the knife. It was fabulous. <laughs> That's where I met Tony Bennett. It was Tony Bennett's birthday yesterday. I met him at the cloister. So the cloister, the Christian, so there was like a lot of action in those days. There was a lot of discotheques. I mean, even though New York had, had, a, had a club, La Club was my, when I moved to New York, that's where I went almost every night was to La Club. Everybody was in cocktail dresses, everything. Then the discotheques, sort of the uptown discotheques started to come into New York. But they were uptown. They were in hotels and different places. But that was sort of in the, in the 60s. Because I moved to New York in 65 and I became a stockbroker. Well, let's talk about that because the way the legend goes is that you had married, was it Jack Haskell was your husband? Yes. Right. And you, right. upon your divorce, you parlayed your divorce settlement into a, a, a small fortune on Wall Street. Right. And so that's what led you right. to become one of the first day traders on the floor. Right. First women day traders on the floor. No, no, no. no. I, was, I wasn't. I wasn't a day oh, trader. I was a broker. A broker. And I, did, I wasn't on the floor. I wasn't on the floor. I was at the office. Uh -huh. The people on the floor, the ones that, that process the trades. You know, they're, they're the people that work on the floor. They're like the, I'm like the boss, and they're like implementing my job for me. So I would get the orders and send them to the floor, and they would, you know, fill the orders and send them back. I was a salesman. I worked for Drexel Burnham. But you were one of the first women to be doing this. Am I right? Right. I was among the first five women in the world, right? That's it. It was really cool. That's incredible. But I went, but I went dancing every night. I was huh. out every night dancing. Never missed a night. <laughs> well, how did you cope with that crazy schedule? Did you you burn the candle at both ends? So what was your with a disco nap? That's when I invented the disco nap. <laughs> I invented the disco nap. So after I would work in the afternoon, I'd get home from the office, I was always tired. I'd take a nap for like an hour, hour and a half, get up and get dressed, and then go out. I'm I work on a two day sh I work two times a day. If I sleep twice a day I can stay out, you know, twice twelve I can almost stay out twenty four hours. Wow. I don't, I, but I'm a great sleeper. I mean I get in bed, I go right to sleep. But I, I go to sleep I go to sleep about one and I'm up about five or six. But I take a disco nap every day. When you were going out to these clubs, did you were you did you have a cocktail? What what how did you, what was your routine? Uh, I never I never did any drugs, which was sort of cool. So I made it through the eighties without any drugs. So after I was a stockbroker, I thought you know I better come up with some like really cool idea that I have about going out every night. Otherwise, they're going to start like a disco's anonymous and they're going to like turn me in. <laughs> So Agon von Furstenberg came to me and he said, listen, I would like for you to be my co-host of this TV show that I'm doing called Agon von Furstenberg in New York at night or something. And you'll be my co-host. I said, great. They said they wanted to shoot it in a studio on 68th Street. I live on 68th. So I said, I want to shoot it at Studio 54. because I didn't really want to shoot a show in a studio. I wanted to shoot it on location. So we shot the, shoot, the first show at Studio 54. But nobody had ever really done a show at a club before, right? This was like the first time right. anyone was ever, you right. were the only person ever allowed in Studio 54 with cameras. Am I right? But, but yeah, but there wasn't anybody. Yeah. Me. It wasn't that they didn't really allow them. I mean, it was me or nothing. And plus I went there every night. So And, and then don't forget... Steve, the studio was only open for 42 months and my show went on the air in 79. So that was sort of like the end of studio, even though I went opening night, you know, I went opening night with uh, Donald Trump and Ivana Trump. You said you about how much fun that you had at the club, which is a place that we had never really. Oh, the club. The club was I wish that I wish there was like a little club. Of course, you always wore men always wore jackets and ties and girls always wore cocktail dresses. And it was a very small. It was in a townhouse. And they had a little bar area, really pretty small. And then they had, it was a it was a um, very high ceilings. It was done like a an English an English carriage house. It had a fireplace with sofas on one side, and it has it had um, um, banquets and a dance floor. And they played, you know, they played a little a little not so much disco, but like raindrops are falling. I mean, like in that period, time frames, but sort of a, you know, voulez-vous coucher avec, that kind of song. Not really like full-blown disco songs. 
but they had they had their own sound. They played a lot of European disco music, which was very fashionable, you know, in the clubs in those days. And it was great. Everybody went there. It was so much fun. Another private club. That's where you met Donald and Ivana. Um, and you first took them there or you met them at the club? I met Donald in like 1972. He didn't meet Ivana to 1976. So I knew Donald a long time before he knew Ivana. Donald was my friend. But the night that I saw him come into the club one night and I said to the maitre d', Who is, who's that man? Because he was very handsome, really good looking, my type, tall, blonde. I love that look. So he said, well, you know, he's a new member. I said, well, I'd like to meet him. What's his name? He said, Donald Trump. He said, you know, I really don't know him. It's like the first time he's ever been in here. So I let it go. About a week later, I see him again. And I say, you know, I'd, I'd really like to meet him. They said, yeah, he said, I don't know what to tell you. Then Roy Cohn invited me to dinner one night at, um, at 21, and Donald was at the dinner. So I either sat next to Donald or one seat away from Donald. But I was right next to Donald. And by the end of the evening, we were we were friends. So that dinner was you, Roy Cohen, and Donald Trump? No, there were more. There was about 10 people there. Uh-huh. It was a, it was a big table of people. Uh-huh, wow. It wasn't just the four of us. I, actually, I don't even remember who else was at the table. I, I know Roy was at the table and... Um, and what was he like? I mean, you said he was your type, tall and blonde, but what was he like as a person? Oh, I, what I, was... He was great. He's exactly the way he is today. I mean, I, I, I like that kind of a man, that sort of very strong, positive, you know. We got along great. We, actually, I was, I was fortunate enough to almost work with him on a very big business deal. He hadn't even, I mean, his business, he, he hadn't even come to New York. And then when he met Ivana, so the first night he... he he met Ivana, not the first night he met Ivana, but the first time he took Ivana out, we double dated and we went to La Club, actually. Right. And um, Ivana and I like hit it off immediately. We became like new best friends in like five seconds. Actually, we were wearing the same outfit, which was a trait that we had. It was in different colors. It was a Saint I wish I had the outfit back. It was such a great outfit. It was like a gypsy top that laced up the front. And it was the skirt was black. It was like a full skirt and had that, you know, the corset that came up with the sleeves. I had it on in red and she had it on in blue. But Yvonne and I had this problem that we always wore the same clothes. I mean, if you, it, it was, it, we were, we had sort of like the separated at birth kind of a friendship. <laughs> it was very cool. Like you would do something and, and like, and you would like look at her and say like, how, how did you, you know, happen to do that at the, you know, exact same minute. But we always wore the same clothes. We always went to the same designers, but if you let us loose in a, a department store, we'd come out with the same clothes. <laughs> you took Donald and Ivana to Studio 54 on opening night, right? Right. They had just come back from their honeymoon. They were, they were married in April of 77. In the early part, I think they were married around the 6th or the 9th. And the 20... Sixth was the opening of Studio 54. So we had gone to Elaine's for dinner. Donald was not a nightlife person. He was not a club person. He didn't drink. He only liked to watch sporting events and have a steak and go to sleep. He was not, not a party animal at all. So I dragged them to the opening of Studio 54. I said, oh, this is going to be the greatest club. You're going to just love it. So we get there. And it was it was very early. It was like 1030. You know, clubs don't even open until 12 o'clock at night. So we get out of the car and there's nobody there. We knock on the door and nobody comes to the door. We knock and now finally some guy comes to the door. A workman opens the door and they're still painting. This guy standing on a ladder. And he's still painting the trellis up on the top. No music. And I don't know if you, I'm, the studio had this really long, wide, high entranceway. When the music was playing, you could feel it from the minute you walked in the door. You know what I'm saying? Because it had like an echo. It sort of like embraced you as you came in. It like, it like held you and the music got you right away. You could even like just hear it in the background, you know, no music at all. So Brooke Shields was there and Margot Hemingway and maybe another hundred people. And if I was there when they dropped the first record. So they started playing the music and everything. And it was, you know, nobody really came in. 
maybe another hundred, you know, studio held, you know, 3,000 people easily. So with 200 people in studio looks like nothing, you know. So people came in, you know, they played a few music, everything. All Donald said, let's go. I'm sure it was at least, if it wasn't before midnight, it was it was like a, a minute to midnight. So we pushed open the, um, so after we got in, like 50 million people showed up and they surrounded the studio all the way around the block and nobody could get in. There were like thousands of people that showed up and they had no stanchions out in front and everybody was like pushed up against the door and nobody could get in. They couldn't open the door to let anybody in. People were like pressed up against the door. So some people got in, you know, but a lot of people didn't get in, a lot of celebrities. And that's that was like the front page of the paper. Couldn't get into Studio 54, and that's how it became famous. My my theory is, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I suspect that you were the one who not sort of introduced Donald and Ivana into New York society, but you helped, you gave them that first taste of social fame, that first taste of social power, and you showed them what the possibilities were. And I think because of that, Donald became sort of the person that he is today, where he he wouldn't have done The Apprentice had he not been a New York social star. Do you, do you agree with me about that? I take very little credit for it, okay? I mean, yes, when I when I first, when, when Ivana first came to town, she didn't know anything or anyone, and I introduced her to everyone, you know, and um, and she didn't know where to go to the doctor or get her nails done or everything. So I really sort of became her eyes and ears. So in a way, that was my input. Plus, I had the television show, and I mean, and, 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 uh, I mean, when Ivana came to me and said, you know, I'm going to go to work for Donald, I'm going to work, I'm going to build the Commodore. She was already pregnant, you know, and how would you want to do that? And that's when she started working. So, but of course I helped her, but believe me, it wasn't me, but I am the first person that ever interviewed Donald because when I did the, you know, my television show was very, very popular. In fact, my television show is going back. It's on the air now. It's on Amazon Prime. I was watching a whole bunch of them, yes. There's only three seasons that are up there, but I'm going on a new network called Freevee, Amazon Freevee. And the only reason, it's a streaming network, but it's predicated upon uh, commercials. So there's commercials on the show. So it's a, you don't have to, you don't have to, you know, subscribe to it. You can just, so I'm putting, so we have, I have 60 shows that are done. And I have, Another 40 shows that just need to be, you know, they ha everything has to be digitized. You have to take out all the commercials and you have to close caption them. It's a real pain in the ass and it's expensive. You know, just to close caption is $2 a word. But interestingly, watching your shows, I, <clears throat> over the weekend I watched about 10 or 12 of them from on, on Amazon. Which ones did you watch? Oh, well, it's it, mostly the ones from season three, I think. There was a lot of stuff with Roy Cohn, and, right. and um, there was a Cornelia Guest interview that I loved. There was a, a couple Donald Trumps. But the thing that strikes me about it, Nikki, it, watching it, it is, I swear to God, it is Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous before Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. I think they ripped you off. Well, it's true. That's a no discussion. In fact, Al Massini, who created Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, I stood up for them when they got married, okay, at St. Patrick's Cathedral. He took my tapes and knocked them off and did Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, without question. Literally from, from the beginning, from the sh from the song, to everything totally. about it, the idea of that right. you were there. Everything. And my girlfriend, my girlfriend Carol Connors, <clears throat> wrote the song. Like she, she wrote the song, and, and Dion sang it. But it was, you know, what shit happens. Well, he also created Entertainment Tonight, Star Search, without question. The, the idea of the show, for people who don't know, for the listeners out there, it is that you are at ground zero at every party, every night. You're talking to the movers and shakers. You're talking to the architects. You're talking to people like Liza Minnelli, Deanna Vreeland. You're talking to... Um, Everybody who's out there at the clubs, I'm wondering what it, what 
did it take to get, you know, cameras and lighting? And how did all of that, and not today, like where everyone just pulls out a phone and starts shooting. Can you imagine? I, when I went to Rio de Janeiro the first time, I had to take 150 pieces of equipment and 11 people. Yes. How did you get all of that into a club? And how? what were just the logistics of doing it every night? It was just a nightmare. First of all, I had no background in doing it, and nobody else did either. I sort of made it up on the fly. The difference between my show and Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, it was Robin Leach telling you how other people live, and my yes. show is how I lived. Okay, so that that was my life, right? I'm the first person to put fashion on television. I'm the first person to put disco. I mean, I had every dra I had drag queens on my show from the very first show. You interviewed Divine. I have a couple of interviews. I've one from the. I, did you see the one that I did at the uh, Limelight? Was she wearing a yellow dress? Oh no, I don't think I saw that one. What gave you the idea to do the show? I know you mentioned this briefly, but I just wanted to circle back on that. When I started the show with Aegon, it was produced by someone else. I mean, I had never entered my mind. The show was never, never even crossed my mind in me doing a television show. It wasn't that it didn't cross my mind. It just it wasn't, you know. And so as it, as it, you know, give me an inch, I take a foot. As, it, as they started, you know, coming up with how it was, it was called in, the in show. And it was in style, in fashion, in step, you know, in, and it had all these different categories and everything. And uh, we did the first show and I like got it immediately. I mean, I sat down and of course I was never scripted in any of my interviews ever. I never had a note on anyone. It's, it's a natural, I really have a natural gift of gab. I can have a conversation with anyone. And what was Aegon like as a co-host? It was supposed to be Aegon's show. So we signed up to do everything. And I went off to the south of France. And I get a call from Aegon. And he says he decided that he didn't want to do the show. That it was too time-consuming. And I think that I think a lot of people came down on him for doing the show. It was on cable. In those days, cable was like, ugh, you know, one of those kind of things. So I, I remember I was I, I was leaving the Hotel de Paris. I was driving down to Saint Tropez to, to visit a friend of mine. And I'm thinking, wow, wouldn't that have been like a great idea to have this show and everything? So when I got down to this friend of mine, I don't know how they found me because there were no cell phones. He said, there's a phone call for you. So I went to the phone and, this, and the producer said to me, you know, Aegon has decided he doesn't want to do the show. So we're going to make it your show. I said, oh, that's great. Sounds like a good idea to me. Uh -huh. So then I brought Aegon on as my co-host. And then I brought on another friend of mine and we did the show. It was never scripted. It was sort of laid out or whatever it was. And it just sort of happened as we went along. And I didn't really want to shoot in the studio. But what I did was because I couldn't stand. I remember, you know, watching, you know, like Jack Parr or, you know, all the different. And everybody has the same set every night looking at some boring rubber tree plant. So if I ever did a show, you know, I would want to do it on the job. On the, I don't want to hear about the party. I want to see the party. So then then I we, we disagreed on everything. So I decided I was going to do the show myself. So there was a club called The Underground that had just opened. And The Underground was a gay discotheque. And there was another gay discotheque that opened after that and took all the business away from The Underground. So they wanted, they gave me to do a party there every Friday night. So, um, because they'd, you know, the show was already, the show was on the air and it was sort of popular. So Aegon and I gave a party every Friday night at the Underground and it would either be for a movie premiere or I gave a party for um, Eric Estrada and I had uh, Harley Davidson send me six uh, Harleys and we hung them upside down into flower vases. So we had a big dinner every Friday night. We did carnival parties. I did everything I ever wanted to do. And they paid me 5000 a week. And I produced the show out of the 5000 And I shot all day on Friday. You know, I would do fashion shows. I would cover all the fashion shows. And then I put one in each show. Because I went to the fashion. It was sort of like a day in the life of Nikki Haskell. Because I did everything basically that I did. But then I got really got lucky because there was a man by the name of Mr. Barkle, who was head of PR for Pan Am. And he was a, he gave me, these things called S1 passes. So you could go all over the world. I could just walk on 
take 10 people to Paris or whatever I wanted. So that, that made it so, I mean, I never made any money with the show, but Rogers and Cowan, I was sort of like, was like the grandfather, they were like the grandfather of the Nikki Haskell show. And since they represented so many dictators, they used to say, that's how I got to the oh Philippines with the Marcoses. And, and I, and I, and that, so I went, I went to the Philippines three times with, I love Madame Marcos. I became best friends Wait, with her. She was the so greatest. So you're, so, Rogers and Cowan were your PR people, and they also represent. They really weren't my PR. You know, I was very close to Warren Cowan for most of my life. Basically, I was I was press. Uh-huh. So they would. I mean, it wasn't like he was doing my PR. You have to understand, there wasn't anybody but me. So when they're doing the Philippine Film Festival and they wanted covered, you know, it's better to send me. You know, there actually there wasn't anybody but me. There was no entertainment tonight. There was nothing. It was just me. And I went I went to the Philippines all by myself. Okay. It was like in the middle of like a semi coup because they said that Madame Marcos had kidnapped her son in law. And like a lot of people didn't come to the film festival because it was like you know, I made up my mind I was gonna interview Madame Marcos no matter what. She wasn't giving out any interviews because of this. So I get to the film festival. And I commandeered the local television crew's film crew because I had no film crew. And I made a deal with them. I would shoot it. They'd put it on television. They'd give me the film. So the first day I did Jeremy Irons. I did about three or four people. And that night I went to the American Embassy with Jeremy Irons. And Madame Marcos came in way over in the corner with George Hamilton. And she came in with the band, you know, and the army and everything. And this red dress. She came all the way around. She came over to me. She said, are you Nikki Haskell? I said, yes. She said, I just saw you on TV. You come with me. So after that, I was always with Madame Marcos. And she had her own film crew with her at all times. So I would just take my little cassettes, you know, either three quarter inch tapes in those days. And I take, I had this little satin bag. I take it with me. I put it in. I do my interviews and then I take it out. And the next day I go down and I take all the footage that she shot the day before, you know, like if we went to Malakani or the palace or whatever. So that's how I did the show. And I became best friends with her. She was fabulous. I think that was that film festival. They'd just finished building the film palais where they were going to show. There was a mad scramble to get it finished in time um, for that festival, right? And it was very controversial because there were some accidents while they were completing it. A lot of people were dead. A lot of people got buried. That's right. They like She built that. And then she built that, which was really quite unique. And But the interesting thing was, the next year, she built this thing called the Coconut Palace, and it it was a it was built because allegedly the Pope was going to come. It was all made out of coconut shells. It was really quite fabulous. I'll never forget. I went opening night with Tony Curtis, and they sat me next to the president, and he said, "How come you never want to interview me? You only want to interview my wife." So I said, oh, President Marcos, I would love to interview you. He said, "Okay, you be at the palace Wednesday morning at nine o'clock." Okay. So Tuesday night, Madame Marcos, she liked to go dancing every night, all night. She would call me from the palace at 2 o'clock, and they'd come and get me. I'd go back there because she wanted to dance another couple hours. We were right on the same page. So I get this note. It said that the Madame Marcos expected me to be on the royal yacht at 7.30 in the morning, that we were going to Corregidor and Bataan. So I just assumed that the president was going to be there, right? So the car picks me up. We, we get on the, we get on, it's, it was a battleship. It was an aircraft carrier, it, planes on the front of it. And you went inside and it was all like, like French Regency. <laughs> but the most, it was absolutely stunning. And there were two men at the end of the, of the plane standing up with these gigantic Limoges urns pouring this caviar, oil drums of caviar into these Limoges urns. It was, fabulous. <laughs> it was as decadent as you could get. You and uh, Imelda loved dancing. So, so what, what, what is it about dancing that you love? Like, cause, cause you go to clubs to dance, right? I do my best thinking on the dance floor. Do you have a dance partner or are you on the floor alone? No, no, I hope usually I have a dance partner. But I, in, in, in a dire emergency, I have been known to get up and dance with any cute guy that I can get my hands on. And was Imelda the only dictator that Rogers and Cohen introduced you to? 
No, uh, I, Reverend Moon. I went. I went to um, the Cannes Film Festival one year. Reverend Moon had this movie called Inchon, and uh, they flew me over there to cover that. That was fabulous. Then I was in Chile shooting my television show, and somehow the interview with Madame Marcos got sort of passed around through the dictator file somehow. And they wanted to know if I wanted to interview Pinochet. I said, sure, why not? And so they said, we have to give them a list of questions. I never had a question in my life to ask anybody. So I wrote out this list. They came and picked me up in an unmarked car. And they took me to the, wherever they took me to. It was a a very ornate office. It might have been even in the house because there was gardens there. And I got along great with him. I mean, we just had the best time. We had lunch. I had lunch with him. I was there for like four or five hours. I was supposed to be there for 20 minutes. And then the next day, I asked him, because, you know, I'm not an investigative reporter. You know, like, what's your favorite color? And, you know, what's your, and I'm, I'm not, and I asked Madame Marcos some tough questions. I finally got an interview with Madame Marcos. I was the only one that got one. And I asked her if she had her son-in-law kidnapped. And I asked her if she thought, what she thought about people calling her Eva Peron. And, and did she like the fact that uh, they called her the Iron Butterfly? Because she had those big butterfly sleeves. I asked her those questions, she, but I waited to the end of the interview to ask her. So I figured she's going to kill me. She- it's interesting because so many of the interviews that you did, I watched the Roy Cohn interview, and you don't shy away from the tough questions. It wasn't just puff pieces that you were doing with people. And no, it'll, but a lot of times no? I found myself, Roy Cohn, of course, uh, history does not think highly of him. I was scared to death of him. But he was always so nice to me. I have I have about five interviews with him. Yeah, the, the interviews. I he was so intelligent, and the things that he was saying made such sense that I found myself very conflicted, thinking I'm agreeing with Roy Cohn. I'm agreeing with the things that he's saying. He was he was a very sharp cookie. He was a brilliant attorney. Okay. He defended a lot of very important people. He was he was close with everybody from the mafia to the president. It wasn't the fact that he wasn't brilliant. If he was on your side, you you had a good, you know what I'm saying? As things are happening, it's different than when, exactly. you, when you reflect upon them 20 years later. They always look worse or better. Listen, Roy Cohn was, was a master of what he did. I'm not saying what he did was right. I'm not saying that he he didn't defend a lot of crazy people, but he was an attorney. That was his job. But I think you're also saying, right, that people remember things differently in that you were going to Studio Big Four. It was a great club. But then subsequently it's become this legend. And that when you were living it, it was more... I knew, no, but I knew it was a legend oh. when I was living it. I have, that I did know. I And it was a very weird thing. I've always had this sort of like second sense kind of thing because I know that nothing lasts forever. So I always do overdo everything that I like. You know, like for instance, I went to studio every night, every night. I mean, not every night because I traveled a lot. I did what I did. But every night that I could go, I went. You know, I have no problem by overdoing things because I know that one day they're going to be gone and you're not going to get to go. So what am I saving it for? Plus, I hate staying home more than anything in the history of the world. I can't stand staying home. So I would rather go out. I mean, I'd rather, let's say I had a bad day. You know, my mother used to say, take good days and bad days and treat them the same. It's better if you have a bad day, might as well go out dancing. What am I going to do? Stay home and think about a bad day? You have to compartmentalize things. I put it over into the I'll get back to you catalog, you know. I I want to sort of circle back to uh, Donald and Ivana again, because I know that you got a lot of crap for your friendship with Donald when in 2015 2016 when he when he first started rising to power and became president and there were friends of yours like like Beverly Johnson who was your best friend on the planet who said I can't be a part of this I cannot be a friend of you if you're going to be friends with him but now we're friends again you know, you want to know something? I'm a pop culture historian, okay? I have all the footage from the 80s. No one has it. I, I'm a historian, whether it's through my television shows, through the things that I've done, my stories in my life. This is part of my life. I mean, I can't help the fact that I've known Donald Trump since 1971 or Roy Cohn or half the world. 
I mean, I, I, I know, I don't, I don't know how I know so many people. Everybody knows that Nikki knows everybody. I, it, I mean, it's, it astonishes me. Yes, I realize a lot of it came from the show. You know, I, I traveled all over the world and met a lot of people, but I knew most of these people before I did that. You know, growing up in Beverly Hills, I met tons and tons of people. I mean, I've been friendly with people that I've been friendly with since I started high school. But I also was a stockbroker and I did the show. The show was, you know, a great entree to meeting people. And, you know, I can't I can't change who I am. You know, I'll never forget when my when my book came out, The Star Diet, my PR guy said to me, can't we do something about, can't we get rid of this sort of Studio 54 image that you have? Again? What can I do? You know, I mean, I can't change reality, you know. And of course, Studio became so fashionable. People said, oh, you know, she used to go to Studio 54. For a while there, it wasn't as glamorous or as chic as it is today. Today, it's like, you know, oh my God, you went to Studio, you know. And then there's a very famous picture of me standing like this on the dance floor of studio saying, I never saw anybody doing drugs at Studio 54. And on the right, there was two guys with Coke spoons in their nose. <laughs> I love to go dancing. I love to I could dance five hours at a time. I find it exhilarating. I've come up with all my best, my best, my best ideas on the dance floor. As to people that you knew that people don't like, like um, Donald and Ivana, you know, your friendship with Ivana, you are best friends. You were best, best friends with her. And I know that you, when she recently passed away, that, you know, you were godmother to her children. You, you know, you were there when, when Ivanka was born. I was there when all three kids were born and all three kids were married. Okay, plus when Ivana and Donald were divorced, for 10 summers, I was with Ivana on the boat with the kids. So I became very close to the kids and especially Ivanka. And, and I mean, I'm close to all the kids. I spent, I spent more time with the kids than any other kids I've ever spent time with. Uh -huh. I don't even have any kids. I was with them all the time. We were there through all the weddings. I've been there with them since day one. Do you know what I'm saying? Plus, I've been friendly with Donald since the 70s. And, you know, it got, it's, it's sort of funny because it really didn't affect my life at all. You know, it actually is, there's a much bigger band of, of, uh, of Donald fans in California than people think. There's like a huge underground of, of uh, very rich people that are very supportive of Donald that are very cliquish mm. that I would, they were very happy to see me. Do you know what I'm saying? And I, I lost a couple of friends along the way, but I, you know, Friends are like bus stops. There's one on every corner. You know, if you don't like this bus, get on another bus. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, waste my time and energy, you know, worrying about somebody that doesn't like me. If they don't like me, you know, not everybody likes everybody. But at the end of the day, it is what it is. I can't change reality. There's some people, you know, I have, I have some very, very close friends that just hate Donald. Like, they loathe him. You know what? We don't talk about it. it. I'm not a political person. You can vote for whoever you want to mm -hmm. vote for. You know, we live in America, and that's the way it is. I'm not somebody that has a cause that goes running down the streets. You know, I'm not marching in parades or whatever it is. I have. I mean, I was with Nancy Pelosi for dinner four weeks ago in Washington. Okay, I was with Clive Davis, and he was he he, he received the um, Abraham Lincoln Award that was given at the Ford Theater, which was sort of cool. I'd never been to the Ford Theater. You can see where Lincoln was sitting and everything. And Nancy Pelosi gave him the award and sat at the table. You know, I, I'm, I'm, that's my job. That's what I'm supposed to do. What am I going to, you know? Well, it, it's, it's that old thing when you're, you know, polite society, you do not talk about religion. You, you do not talk about politics. Those are just two things to stay away from if you want to have a civil conversation with people. But there are some people that are just completely like, you know, first of all, I'm all, I, I work very hard. I do a lot of things. I'm not, I don't, I'm not interested what's on CNN. I'm not interested what's on Fox. I get up in the morning, I read everything once. That's it. So I know what's happening, you know, during the day. I'm not watching TV all day. With I can't, I, I mean, I have to live my own life. I, I don't agree with what's going on. You know, I'm hoping it'll pass. We'll all get through it alive. Usually we do. Something always saves us at the end. But I mean, I just, it, it's not my, it's not my hue and cry. It's not what I'm, I'm not a political person. I'm somebody that wants to make things better. Yes, I have things that I like and don't like. 
I, I'm, I'm proud that I know Donald Trump and I love their family. I, well, right. And I wanted to ask you, like, what is it that you like about people? You know, like, you know, so many people. And what are the things for you that you look for in someone that makes you decide you like someone as opposed to you don't? I mean, it seems to me you like a lot of people. But what, what do you really? I like people that are friendly and fun that have that are uppers. I cannot stand being around anybody that's a downer. I'm very superficial. I don't want to hear that your mother's sick and your aunt's passing away and just has got the flu. I mean, I like to keep your things on an even keel. I like to go, I like to be with people that are very productive, people that are always in the doing something, not to think, talking about what they want to do or what they didn't do that they should have done. Or why didn't they? I want to be, I need to be around positive, active, fun people. My best friends are Democrats and hate Donald. Right. It does not affect my friendship. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm sure there's some people that call me out on certain things. You know, doesn't bother me. I mean, I, I, I mean, I'd rather have, I, I think everybody thinks I'm fun and fabulous, but that's not true. You know, the people that don't like me, this one doesn't like me for this or for that. I mean, I try, I, you know, I'm really a people person. That's my job. You know, I'm, I'm, I like to be in the, in, in, in a place where I, where I bring people together, not tear them apart. You know, I like to entertain. I like to have parties. I like to have everybody be very social. I mean, I never think about this one's a, a Democrat or a Republican. They're, they're my friends. You know, I mean, sometimes they get a little, you know, this one doesn't like this. Or they, I have two of my girlfriends that loathe Donald. We never discuss it. You have such a close circle of friends that I follow on social media. So many of the people who have been by your side through thick and thin forever and ever and ever. You think of Joan Collins, Ivana Trump, Clive Davis is probably your one of your best friends in the world. Robert Evans, Beverly Johnson, George Hamilton, Atlanta Stewart. Right. Those have all been your friends for 40 years. And the Hiltons, very close to the Hiltons. Paris and, and Nikki's mother, Kathy. And to the kids, too. I was there when, when Kathy was pushing uh, Paris around in a baby buggy. I gave Kathy Hilton a 21st birthday party at Studio 54. Wow. Did you know Swifty Lazar? I was friendly-ish. Because I didn't, I wasn't living in L.A. during his reign. I was living in New York. So I was in New York from 1965 to like 1989. That was like my, and I very rarely went back to L.A. But when I did go back, I mean, I, I, uh, I was very close to Alan Carr. Do you know who Alan Carr was? Yes, I remember. Sure. I, he, must add, he was fun. He was a fun one. Yeah, he was. I miss him to death. And I used to come back and I used to go with him to, to Swifty's party. I'm not saying I went to every party with him to Swifty, but I went to a lot of them. And I was very close to Alan. I gave Alan a lot of parties. Had a lot of fun with Alan. Alan was the best. And now that I'm going on this new network freebie, because I, I have 60 shows and there's only 30 shows that are up on Amazon Prime. And there's two seasons that somehow are just not up. So I'm very happy that I'm putting up 60 shows and I have this interview that no one's ever seen except on my show on Bob Evans. And now Bob Evans mm -hmm. is really hot again. Yeah. So I have, I have this wonderful one-hour interview that I did with him. I found a bunch of footage. Actually, there was a tape that was missing for years. And I found the tape. And there was an interview that I with Liza on it. And there was an interview with Donald and Ivana. This is before Ivana died. I knew that when I knew that when I shot this, that I had done an interview with him, but I could never find this interview because I licensed my footage a lot. And this would have been like the, because people kept asking me, do you have an interview with Donald and Ivana? I had Ivana and I had Donald, but I didn't have them together. And I found that interview. Actually, I showed it to Donald at the funeral. There was a dinner after they interned Ivana at the golf course. They had a big dinner party. Big. There was just a family and like five of us. And I showed him this interview. He said, will you send that to me? And about five nights before, I had gone to the Pasadena Pops, and um, Michael Feinstein was doing Berlin, and and Liza was there, and Liza sang. And then afterwards, we went back to Michael Feinstein's house, and I showed Liza this clip, where she goes, "It's Nikki Haskell," <laughs> and it, it was really a great show to find. It had the Hell's Angels premiere on it, and Donald, and that was a great show. So I'm getting ready to put up all these shows on, on this new network now. I'm very excited about it. 
Can I ask you about regine and regines? Because my first job as a student, like out of school, was working in regines in London. So, um, oh, okay. I, I was at regines in London. Actually, I've been in regines everywhere. Um, I used, uh, I, I love, I love the one in Paris. That was, that was really one of my, you know, Europe has always had a lot of really fabulous discos. Of course, Monte Carlo being the best and Saint Tropez, you know, as, as Le Cab. And there's no discos anymore. There's no, you, you can't find a disco. There was a great disco in L.A. that closed when everything closed down on Sunset. There was like a little Swatch Studio 54 that was only open on Saturdays. Even that's closed. But so I, um, I, I had sort of a strange relationship with Regine. She was, when she first opened, you know, I was there every night. Uh, I used to go to Paris all the time. Uh, Jimmy's was one of my favorite in Monte Carlo. I mean, that's one of the great discotheques of all times. Feeling comes back and waterfalls. I mean, you couldn't ask. And she had a great discotheque in Rio de Janeiro. So, Regine and I, Regine got a little dis- upset by the fact that I was giving so many parties at so many clubs. And when I, I, t- I went when Pan Am, when Pan Am was my sponsor, I took a plane load of people down to Rio de Janeiro, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Ursula Andrews and Liza and all these different people, and Regine had all these parties, and she didn't invite me, right? So when it came time to do a wrap-up on the show, Corey Hay and I put the knock on Regine. I said, oh, she was finished as queen of the nightlife. And then Roy Cohn called me and said, we have a real problem with Regine, Nikki. She attacked me at, at the Hotel Paris at the Grand Prix. She tried to beat, she beat me uh-huh. up. She was hitting me. They had to pull her off of me. Right at the, they have this, you know, the Grand Prix, they have this very chic luncheon, you know, sitting on the terrace and everybody, it's like the hot spot. And she started beating me up. She was so upset. About, so I had a, so Roy Cohn made me go back to Rio the next year and I had a re-interview. <laughs> but then we were friends. It was sort of this on and off kind of a friendship, more on than off. But we did have our moments, you know. I loved regimes in New York. I went there all the time. I went to all the clubs. I would go to, I would, I would go to, Le Club, then we'd go to Regine's, then we'd go to Studio. So you could go to two, three clubs in a night. There are some other clubs around that time, Xenon, Haraz, places like that. Tell me about those. Well, I, I never went to Haraz. That was, but I did, I, first of all, so I was engaged to the Duchess of Bedford's son, DDA Millionaire. And he came to New York and his sister was Katrine Millionaire. We gave a party at Xenon. It was the first time anybody had ever given a party because of all the newspapers and everything. So then DDA and I, when I started going with DDA, the Duke and Duchess of Bedford were coming to New York. I gave a seated dinner for them at, at Xenon. This is before the show. I mean, I hadn't, I didn't have the show at the time, but I had, had started giving parties. And then when, and then when, of course, when the show started, it was like a lateral move, you know, to start giving parties. And I gave a I gave a very famous party at I, I don't know if you might have been on one of the tapes the Xenon Christmas party that I gave for orphans and uh, every year uh-huh. which was great I did it with Ricky Schroeder and little Lori Lachlan and they were I, I, I Ricky Schroeder was six years old he he came to every one of my parties his parents were like party animals in fact I saw him the Beverly Hills Hotel gave me my 80th birthday party and they. Uh, and I invited Ricky, and he came to the party, and he said that um, that you know he you know, he was going to discotheques at six years old because of me. He was on an interview on every one of my shows. He was adorable, and he came to Xenon. I, I, I did a lot of shows from Xenon. I liked Howard Stein a lot. Then he opened another club called Bar One. There's very few clubs that I haven't been in. I was not a favorite of Haraz. It was a little bit too downtown for me. I wasn't, I mean, I never went to, I, I, I mean, I used to go to, what was the name of the club that I, I never really liked the limelight. I was never crazy out there. Was, right. But you were in area. I remember one of the famous things, the area was when Bernard Zett was doing you and he interviewed you as you during his, during the disco theme there. They did the Studio 54 theme in area and they had these, 
you know, they had like showcases as you walked around. It was people trying to get in. The showcases were all people trying to get into Studio 54. And the last showcase, last one was Steve Abel standing on a fire hydrant in an orange coat. And, and you saw Andy Warhol and Calvin like reaching out to Steve to try to get in the back door of studio. And then when you walked in, they had this set that said the Nikki Haskell show. And they had they had walls of shows of all my shows. And he and what was his name? Bernard? Bernard said, yes. So he came over to my house and I gave him a lot of lot of clothes and quite a few of my dresses. But he never really put enough makeup on. He was a little bit too, you know. <laughs> I liked Aria. I didn't love Aria. But you also were a big fan of Stringfellows, though. You were at Stringfellows a lot. There was a Stringfellows in L.A. I'll never forget. It was in the Rodeo. It was right on Rodeo Drive. And I gave, I had a big birthday party there. Tony Curtis was there. Margot Hemingway, Suzanne Plachette. It's a great party I gave there, but the but I gave a party in New York at Stringfellows for um, Dionne Warwick when she launched her perfume, Dionne. And she wanted me, you know, the things used to walk by and they, you know, the, the perfume would come out. Right, yeah. Spray out. I, she wanted me to put them all over the club, but I would have <laughs> asphyxiated everybody because it was like, she did a knockoff of Shalimar. It was like rose-scented ammonia. <laughs> Actually, that night, Andy Warhol came to that party, and that was the last time he was ever photographed. Oh, wow. He died. It was a Saturday night. Sunday, he went in the hospital. Monday, he died. I am thinking of you as this pop culture historian. You described that. You said that yourself. And I also think of Warhol as similar in many respects. Yes, he was an artist, and he did credit all that art, but he was very much... In some ways, seemed similar to you. He went out most nights, right, and and was. Well, I love. I I'm I'm very flattered to be compared to Andy. I mean, Andy is you know a, a genius, not given the credit that he that he deserves. He's getting the credit. He's getting the credit at the cash register. I mean, Andy was. You know, if you were if you were at a party and Andy mm-hmm. was there, you knew you were at the right party. Andy was great. Loved Andy. It's it's funny. So many of the interviews that you did with people, it seemed like this is before people had the wherewithal to act, to know how to be interviewed. People weren't really used to being on camera and they weren't used to being interviewed so that they don't have that that thing that people have now where they're pushing themselves and they're over the top. They were everyone was very subdued. And it's a very interesting thing. It's pre-fame you're talking to people before they knew how to be famous. But I also talk to people differently than interviewers. I don't pre- I don't put people on guard. I have a conversation with them. It relaxes people. If you get, if you start hitting people with a thousand questions, they get very, you know, standoffish. But I don't have those kind of interviews. I mean, I have like conversations with people. And I think really one of the best things, the fact that I was never ever programmed. So you, I mean, I used to see Barbara Walters sitting there with those blue cards right. asking a question, just asking questions. She never, <laughs> ever listened to the answers. You know, say, I, murdered, I murdered Jack on Thursday. Said, what did you have for lunch? Do you know what I'm saying? It was just, she got all, if, if you're, if you're interviewing someone and you don't, you have to listen to what they're saying. Otherwise you don't have, a, you can't talk to them. If you're sitting there with questions in your hand, you're in a different mindset, you know, and you're thinking about the next question. And that's why I don't think you get the credit you deserve, because I think you were a complete natural on camera. Uh, you, you were just a genius at it. Totally, I am. I, I, mean, I, don't, understand. I don't understand why I don't have a TV show. No, really, there, there's very few people that are as good as I am, instinctively. I mean, I just happen to be really lucky at that. I can't imagine that all these years I still don't have a show. No, no, me. I mean, it's a little late now, but, you know, but. But my old shows, I'm so, you know, you do something 40 years ago and you think, oh, it's going to be great. And you look at it, it's like really the worst. But and the show is so great looking. I mean, it looks great. Uh, all the people look great. I mean, the clothes are great. I wore fabulous clothes. 
Not one mistake. You don't realize at the time that you are in the prime of your life. You are in the, the bloom of your rose. Wow, thank you. And it's such a time capsule of that period where you just have Marissa Berenson and the, you know, Eliza and Halston and everybody who are just there being themselves and being natural. And it's just everybody having fun. They're there. Now they're not there. So it's, it's you know, having this historic footage is just, is that, you know, nobody has it. Yeah. And it's very interesting. For some reason, nobody has any footage on the 80s. I did this documentary called Sunset Strip. We found so much footage from the 20s, 30s, 40s. I was shocked. You know, when I did the, when, there's nothing on the 80s. I mean, there is, but there's none of this. There's none of the nightlife. There's none of the parties, none of the clubs. It's, I don't know. It's just my style is different. You know, my, my cachet and I, people like, like to talk to me. You know, I'm, they don't feel put off. They don't, they're not frightened of me. Well, it's also interesting that so many of the people who worked on your show, when you think about it, it's Alan Risch, it's the DuPont twins, it's, it's uh, Cornelia Guest. These were all people who were inter interns for you at the, you know. Patty Rains. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't know how the show ever got on the air. I have no idea. I would come back to the office and Cornelia was throwing pickles out of the 33rd floor window. <laughs> I mean, it was really, it was not really a well organized, but we did it. Somehow we got it on every week. The DuPonts were a gigantic help. I would never have gotten to Rio if it wasn't for them. I would love to get the DuPonts on the show and I'd love to get Cornelia on the show as well. Well, why not? I mean, I can work it out for the DuPonts, but they don't have, they don't even have a computer. Well, listen, Fenton, but before we start wrapping up, was, are there any questions that you had about just the, the whole? No, I want, I want to show, I want to show you my new adventure. I'm now doing my NFTs. They're called Ports of Call. Oh yeah. And they're, um, they're on OpenSea and they're 15 pictures you know, I paint. I've been painting my whole life. There are 15 pictures in a series, and there's 10 pictures in each series, and they're signed and numbered. So usually when you get an NFT, I'm sure you have no idea what an NFT is. Don't worry, either does anybody else. But um, when you get an NFT, you basically get nothing in a place that doesn't exist. So to avoid that particular problem, I had prints made of all my pictures. So when you get your NFT... You get the pictures. I want to talk a little bit about the, the funeral when Ivana died, that being buried on the golf course, the press has been giving it a different slant. Eric called me and he said, do you know where my mother wants to be buried? Because she didn't make any, her, her parents were buried in Czechoslovakia and she didn't want to be buried there. He didn't want, and he went to the, uh, the Catholic churches in New York, uh, Catholic cemeteries. And they were all in places he didn't like. He said, my mother wouldn't like to be here. And that was the end of the conversation. Then I was invited to go to the funeral home where Ivana was lying in an open coffin. Uh, a lot of people have come out and said that she was cremated and that she wasn't really in the coffin, which is not true. What was she wearing in the coffin? She was, she was laying in the coffin. It was half open. It was a white velvet coffin, white velvet inside. It was all mm -hmm. tufted. And she was wearing a gold, a gold and white, a gold and like a mesh. I know the dress. It's a long dress, long sleeves. It's all gold beaded. And she had her hair up. She looked very, very, it's the first time I've ever seen an open casket. Ooh, not my favorite. And the whole casket, the bottom of the casket was all flowers. So we were there when they closed the casket. When we went to the church, they closed up all of Lexington Avenue. We went from... 81st to 65th Street down Lexington. And uh, I, I went in with the family. There was only five of her friends, close friends there at the at the funeral parlor, excuse me. And then afterwards, they said, we're going to the internment, you know. And, and they, they said, well, she's being buried in Bedminster. So I didn't even think about it. When I got there and they said, she's being buried in the golf course, I was like, you're kidding. Right. It sounds a little it sounds a little janky, but okay. yeah. It sounds worse than it is. It's like one of those things that sounds worse than it is. Because it was in an off area. It wasn't like you're like standing, you know, golfing or what it's in an off area, off behind. You know, it's like it's a big golf course. And it was in a beautiful secluded spot with trees all around it and flowers around it. 
So they had a service that was that um, that was uh, um, the family, and Dennis Basso and myself, and this friend of hers, Vivian Sirota, and um, Neil Fox and Martha Kramer. And that was it. And Donald gave a, a a speech at the funeral at the internment. And he asked me to get up and speak. He said, I'd like Nikki to speak. He said, because I know Nikki longer than I know Ivana. And the priest was there and he and they handled it like a like a regular ceremony. Even the opera singer that performed at the church, he was there and sang all of Ivana's mm-hmm. favorite songs, a lot of Bocelli's songs. It was very touching. It was done in a they had a, a round tent. Um over the family and um, they served soft drinks or whatever. And we were there about at least an hour. And I spoke and I think a couple of the kids spoke again. And um, then, then we, they, they lowered the casket like partially in, you know, and we all threw roses on it, you know, made a little prayer or whatever. And then they, we went into the into the clubhouse, which was not not close to where we were. You know, they had carts that took us up. We were we were in an off spot. So so it isn't just like on the golf course. It is in a secluded area. No, it is on the golf course. No, it's on the golf course, but it's over. The, it's like there. It's not like here. You know what I'm saying? It's over there. You'd never know it was there. It's. Do you know what I'm saying? It's got a very small headstone. Do you think that that's what she would have wanted? Yes, totally. It is. Okay. Yes, because that way her kids will always see her. She didn't want to be someplace where nobody saw her. She wanted to see her family. And her family will always be there. Is the rest of the family going to be there as well? Is it going to be like a family interment? You know, it sort of happened as I I was never in really, in, I just sort of had to like pick it up as I went along. You know what I'm saying? Donald sat with us at the table. We went in for dinner into the club. There was only three tables, four tables, but they had set up this beautiful buffet. And uh, when we sat down, Ivanka sat with us. And then Donald came over and he sat with us. It was just the family. We talked about a lot of things, you know. And um, he said he was happy that Ivana was there. Because the press tried to make it into this thing like it was a text right off, blah, 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 blah. Well, it probably is, you know, with nothing surprises me. All I know is that I was actually pleased beyond belief and thrilled that they, that they honored Ivana as graciously and as inclusive of all the family. And, and, and the, the church was absolutely gorgeous. And the speakers were terrific and they were flower. I mean, they really did the most extraordinary job that I've ever seen. I've been, unfortunately, been to a lot of funerals. I've never seen anything like this. Never. It was done with such, it, it was a little, it was a little uptown, but it was really done with class and dignity. The way that it was portrayed was that it was, she was sort of in death that she wasn't given as much um, uh, respect or whatever, but it's nice. To That's hear. not true. It's just the other way around. Yeah. It's nice to hear that. Don't forget, Donald was there all day. He, I mean, I don't know what he was thinking about, but he, he was extremely, extremely emotional at the, uh, at the uh, funeral parlor. He came right up to me and he said, after everything we've been through, can you imagine that this is happening? Yeah. This is opening line to me. And he was, he's, he stood by the coffin. He said, look at Ivana. She was so, I mean, he went, he went through everything. Because, I, mean, I mean, I was there when they were doing Mar-a-Lago and I, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I was there, mm-hmm. I was there, you know what I'm saying? And I found him to be very connected completely to the situation. He was very much into, you know, her demise and sad, saddened by it. And, um, then when we then to drive two and a half hours for the internment after we were there since eleven thirty, we drove up there. He was gave a a really touching speech, and um, I was I was so pleasantly surprised 
by how elegant and how mm, well mm-hmm. how well it was handled and how everything was there wasn't one you know fly don't forget there was lots of security you know the streets were blocked off i mean we had we had security going all the way to bedminster we went in a motorcade you know it, it, the whole thing was handled but it was such a a, a, a because one thing that's so unique about the kids is all the kids love each other. Do you know what I'm saying? So there's a great love between them and all their children are all about the same age. In fact, Eric, Eric really was the mastermind of the whole thing. He really put the whole thing together. And I was sitting behind Eric's wife and they have two little children. His daughter is a reincarnated Ivana. She had a hair <laughs> like the baby version of Ivana. Like the little thing on the top was like little bangs and little things. And she was so, she was like two or three years old. She was so precocious. Oh, she was adorable. Kids were just so well behaved. And it, it was, um, and everybody was there. It, I, I can't even explain the, the love that I felt for Ivana from the family. And Melania, uh-huh. and Melania was there. And she was as gracious. Okay. I like Melania a lot. You know, and I even like Tiffany. I mean, I, I like everybody. It's a it's a really, a really, it's one of the most beautiful families I've ever seen in my life. I've never seen it. The kids are gorgeous. And, and um, Baron was there. Baron is six foot seven. Baron is so interesting because I some of the pictures I see he looks like Donald did in that interview uh, when he, right right before the Trump Tower opens. The, the, they look exactly the same. It's in, it's uncanny. They look exactly the same, but he has he looks like his mother too. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You are a lightning rod. You are at ground zero for so much of pop culture in in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And I still am. I mean, I'm, I'm really lucky. You still are. Nikki, it's such an honor to meet you. You're an inspiration. This is so much fun. And I have, I feel I've learned so much in this one hour. And thank you for the, thank you for the joy and the inspiration and all that you've done. I really think you're a, a pioneer. Thank you. 